So just to give you a heads up, you know, now here at The Dwelling, what we do is we kind of front load our message or our service with things like some singing and confession and sometimes like creeds or prayer or those kinds of things or maybe baptisms or um, whatever it might be. And then we kind of start to end the service with a, a time in God's word and then we end with a song and a blessing and, and then that's kind of it. So that's for if you're brand new to The Dwelling, that's kind of where we're still going. And then I got to get to an Astros game. The second most important thing. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he could become a Cowboys fan. Nah, they're better not. Are, are, are Christians even Cowboys fans? Is that possible? I don't even know. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I'm going to read the whole chapter. But I want you to kind of be paying attention, and this is why I'm going to read it today. I was thinking I was going to have maybe somebody else read it, but I want to enunciate the parts that I want to really focus on. So just pay attention to some of the inflection of what I'm trying to emphasize as I read through the entire first chapter of Genesis, okay? Then we're going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Here it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with 
lots of little living creatures and let birds fly above the, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. What kind of kids, what kind of animal, what kind of sea creature would be a fun one to have been created? Think of a dolphin or a little octopus that God made. Starfish. Yeah, a lot of cool cool things in the water. And then, uh, according to their kinds, every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You do this every time you mow the lawn. Subdue the earth. There's some real truth in that, actually. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then he could get on into the seventh day and the rest and all that good stuff. But let's pray and we're going to unpack this a little bit, okay? God, thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for being alive and well. Thank you for even just today, how Lacey, through her testimony, reminded us that you are still working and active in our lives. Thank you that we're able to be together to hear from your word today. And I pray now that your word, Lord, would grant faith into the hearts of those who maybe don't have that yet. We know it's your word that can do that. And so we know it's your word also that strengthens our faith. And so those who have the gift of faith, we pray that they would be strengthened in that faith today. May your spirit come now, Lord, and do what only you can do. Work in our hearts. We pray this boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just get my thing going here.
God's work and activity at the beginning sets the pace, sets the pace for the rest of the Bible. God's work and his activity at the beginning sets the pace for the rest of the Bible. And that's why uh, the Bible is primarily about God and it's primarily about his work and his activity. That's what the Bible is primarily about. The main character of the Bible is God. He's, he's what it's all about. He's the main character. He's, the, he's God. And it's primarily about him and his work and his activity. And at the beginning, we already begin to see something that sets the pace for the rest of our reading of Scripture. It's why this is um, a brand new series today. It's a series called The Pentateuch. Uh, the Pentateuch is what we're calling this series. What does Pentateuch mean? Pentateuch is simply a Greek word for five books. That's what it means, five books, Pentateuch. And the, the reference for the Pentateuch are the five books of the first part of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what the Pentateuch is about. And there's different words. You could use maybe the word Torah. You could use uh, different kind of ways to explain these first five books, although Torah can have uh, even a broader meaning than that. But we're going to focus in on the front of the Bible over the next couple of weeks, especially these first five books, the Pentateuch, because as we kick off kind of another school year here, it feels a little bit like a, a freshness, doesn't it? Summer's kind of drawn to an end. We're starting kind of feeling fresh, starting new. Here we go. And so I kind of wanted to get us to think about the front a little bit, the beginning. Uh, so all the way from God, in the beginning God, to Adam and Eve, uh, all the way stretching to, I mean, a long, a long period of time in there, all the way stretching to Moses is really what the Pentateuch is about. And a ton of different stories in there. Um, now, you can think of the Pentateuch as five individual books, but I do want to show you just quickly that you also can read the Pentateuch as a kind of singular book. Even the Bible refers to the Pentateuch in that kind of way in a couple different places. I'm just going to show you a couple today. Uh, in Ezra, uh, 2 Chronicles, I don't have 2 Chronicles on there, but 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 4, you could go look at that on your own where he says this. But in Ezra chapter 6, verse 18, it says this, And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And kind of this singular feel to it. In the book of Moses. And all of these references to the book of Moses, if you see what they're talking about, it kind of has this, it could be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteron or Deuteronomy. And so the book of Moses is a reference, refer, referencing all these five books. Jesus himself brings this up. I want to I highlight this. In Mark chapter 12, 
in Mark chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Jesus himself calls this the book of Moses. And I've kind of, as I've been studying this a little bit, I kind of want to Although it's fine to look at just Genesis and just Exodus and just Leviticus, that's fine. But over the next, this kind of through this series, I want to treat it as kind of a singular-like book and, and pay attention to what it might be trying to say to us as we look at it as a kind of singular-like um, writing, you might say. Now, because this is referenced as the book of Moses... The general consensus of Christians over the past thousands of years has been that Moses actually wrote the Pentateuch. Um, now scholars debate this and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, um, the, the, the church has traditionally held that Moses is the author of these five books. Now, how he got the information about that book, whether it was through direct revelation or whether it was through writings that had been handed down or whether it had been through oral tradition, we just don't know. But at the end of the day, most would agree that Moses actually wrote the Pentateuch out and this is important for us. And it's the reason why we need to pay attention to the kind of front part of the Bible here because it's setting the pace for the rest of how we read it. It's, it's focusing us on what needs to be focused on. I want to point out for just a quick example. John chapter 5, Jesus says something here about Moses and what was said. John chapter 5, verse 46 and 47. He says this, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now that's interesting, because that's 1,400 plus years after Moses, Jesus is saying that Moses was talking about him. So this is where you could start to say something like, where's Jesus in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? And if Jesus is serious about this, we've got to pay attention to the Bible because sometimes it can start to come off to people, and I hear it even in the Christian, kind of from a Christian perspective, it can start to feel like, well, the, the Old Testament, this back, this front part, well, that's like a different God, or God worked in a different way back there, and now he's working in, in a different way up here, and it can almost start to feel like there's kind of a God back here, and there's a different God up here. You see what I'm saying? You can start to feel that a little bit. And that's just not true, right? The God of the back here God is the same God up here God. It's the kind of the one God. And that's what we're going to start to kind of see as we unpack some of this Pentateuch stuff over the next couple of weeks. It's why we got you this Bible reading plan. I want to get you in. Now, we're not going to, we didn't break this out as the whole Pentateuch. Um, this is just breaking out the, the book of Genesis. But I want to get you 
up and into God's word on some of this front end stuff in the Bible. Because God's work and activity early on sets the pace for the rest of the Bible. That's my main thought here. You following that? Okay, that's all that was was setting up the series. That's not even today's message. Now today's message starts. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. There's two things I want to highlight today, and I want to try to unpack for us a little bit, and I think it kind of sets up how we start to think about the Pentateuch. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Two main points that I want to highlight today and I'm going to talk about. The first is this. These are super important theological terms. They're, they're vital for the Christian life. And, and my hope is that you'll kind of walk away remembering these two things today. The first is this. There is a God. And the second is this. You're not him. That's the second. There's the two thoughts. That's, that's how brilliant I'm going to get today, although I stole that from somebody else. There is a God, and you're not him. Let's just look at this idea of there being a God, okay? Uh, there's different arguments for there being a God or not being a God. And, and you can get to this in a couple different ways. There's arguments for God. Uh, there's arguments that would try to disqualify there being a God. And depending on where you're at, maybe uh, you're a Christian or maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're an atheist or maybe you're an agnostic. And so you don't you don't really kind of hold an opinion on whether there's a God or not. Or maybe you're a skeptic. Uh, wh wherever you might be on the kind of spectrum of things, because we want to be a church where you can come as you are. Because we believe God really will meet you where you are. I wanted to spend just a second talking to especially the atheist, partly the agnostic today. And I wanted to just spend a second on that. There's different arguments for there being a God. And there's also different arguments for there not being a God, and you potentially know some of those. Um, there's, there's arguments from order and design. There's arguments from humanity by looking at humanity, mind and nature. There's arguments uh, by looking at change and causality. There's arguments that are from conscience and beauty uh, and congruity for morality. There's even an argument for just the idea of perfect beingness. There's different arguments for there being a God or not. Being a God comes from everything seeming in the world, as you observe the world, everything seeming so orderly. Uh, most people, Christian, different religions, atheists, agnostics, would acknowledge that there is, an, a, there is a certain order to things. As you look out at the world, grass kind of does the same stuff in most places. When, when you look at people, I look out at the room today, every one of you seem to kind of have your ears in the same place. As you look at, at waves, waves kind of keep doing what waves do. 
Um, as you look at trees, trees typically grow up. Um, as you observe the sun, the sun seems to come up over that person's house every day in kind of the same way. There's a spinning of the earth that just seems to keep happening and it doesn't shift and change too much. We seem to all have kind of 10 toes-ish. We all seem to, there seems to be, as you just look at and observe the world, a kind of orderliness to it. Most people would be okay with that and, and agree with that fact. The question quickly becomes something like, how do you make sense of why that is? And the reality is, is any of the arguments for or against God, you're going to come to some place where you can't prove it. And both would kind of sides or any argument will have to submit at some point. I can't prove it. And that's fair enough. The question might be, what's the better answer? As you kind of wrestle with this, what seems to make more sense? Um, this is interesting. Augustine, I got to bring up my notes here. Augustine, St. Augustine, he says this as he kind of thinks about this particular argument for God. He says, he says this, if there is an order at all in the world, it is necessary to hypothesize an orderer. Not necessarily a divine orderer. See, notice this. Well, I'm not even really talking at this point about Christianity or the Christian God. All we're kind of at this point talking about is just, is there a God in general? And so he's even saying, maybe there's not even necessarily a divine orderer, although St. Augustine is a Christian. But he says, there's got to be some kind of orderer, an orderer of some kind. What is that? Uh, Plato says this, there cannot be orderliness or purposefulness, I don't know if I'm saying that right, without a ground of order or mind that shapes the order of a thing. Governance in the world implies some kind of governor. That's just one argument for why um, you might conclude that there is a God. Now, you might conclude other things to be the orderer, but I would suggest it might actually make most sense, and to me it does, that there is a God who, who is this. He is the divine governor. He is the divine orderer. That actually makes the most sense to me. I'm especially talking to the atheist or the agnostic in the room. What do, where do you land? Because at the end of the day, you'll have to have some kind of faith in some kind of answer, whatever it is. Does that make sense? So if, if, if you're an atheist and you say there is no God, okay, but then what is that for you? Whether it be an argument of causality or morality or whatever it might be, whatever the argument might be, at some point you're going to get pushed into a place where you'll have to acknowledge faith of some kind, however that might be defined for you, in something. 
And to me, with this particular argument of orderliness, the idea of there being a divine order actually makes sense. The Bible, now we're talking very specifically the, the God of the Bible, would say this in Psalm 94. He would articulate this particular argument kind of like this. Psalm chapter 94, verses 9 and 10 says this. And I actually want to get to 11 if you have your Bibles. He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? Uh, Verse 9, I'm sorry. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, connection between knowledge, the fact that you can think, and some kind of divine orderliness to that. And then verse 11, I simply kind of didn't have on there, but it says this, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. And that Lord there would be the divine name Yahweh. And so that does begin to focus us in from a biblical perspective on who we would say this God is. So that's one argument for there being a God. Another argument that I wanted to just throw out there is an argument from beauty. Why are things beautiful? As you look at mountains, as you look at the Grand Canyon, as you look up the the, the shimmer of dew on grass, how are things beautiful? And why are things beautiful to you? Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? How something could be beautiful? Now, our secular world, and from kind of a secular standpoint, you might argue something like beauty might be there, and we maybe have kind of created this thing beauty so that we can pass on our genetic code. I mean, you can kind of get there where, where beauty might help from a certain worldview, the, the sexual advancement of, of genetic code and to help that get better. But I would say something like, how, how can you look at the Grand Canyon and say that that's beautiful and then even say something like this? Is it beautiful even when somebody's not looking at it? So prior to, let's just say from some worldviews, prior to man being on planet earth, was the Grand Canyon beautiful? Is there a kind of intrinsic beauty that's been placed in certain things? Don't we desire that to be true? That when I look at my wife and I say, you are beautiful, that it's not that I'm sneakily trying to just get our genetic code to advance. We don't live that way, do we? Even if you're an atheist or an agnostic, you you have this kind of sense that you want there to be intrinsic beauty on certain things. My question would simply be, how do you reason and get to a place where that can even be true from your worldview's perspective? Something like beauty. 
I want to be able to look at my wife and just say, you are beautiful. And it's just, that's just because you're beautiful. And from a biblical perspective, there's actually an answer to why that's true. And the reality biblically would be something like, because Jacqueline has been made in the image of God. And so I can look at her and say, you are beautiful. And I have my reason why. And so from a biblical standpoint, I would actually argue it makes more sense that beauty actually makes sense from a biblical worldview over what our secular view, uh, like a secularist would kind of posit, put forward as a worldview uh, for you today. Psalm 19 says it kind of like this in connection to maybe this argument. This would be, again, a biblical thought, but it says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You look at the stars and it's, it's beautiful because it's connected back to someone who's made it beautiful. You following me? That would be our argument. I would simply ask the atheist or the agnostic or the skeptic, how do you get to a place of looking at beauty? I'd genuinely love to hear that conversation. But I wanted to throw those two forward today because in the beginning, God is what the word of God lays out. In the beginning, God. See, what's at stake is potentially, you might argue, meaning, value, purpose, and a whole lot of other things. Definition of love, definition of beauty, morality, what it's connected back to. There's a whole lot at stake here. Man, high schoolers in the room, follow me on this. Give some serious thought to some of this. If you want to dig in a little further, I like a couple guys that I just throw out to you. I like Tim Keller. He's been helpful for me around this kind of argumentation. Um, another would be John Lennox. Uh, somebody's recently pointed him out to me and reminded him of, of him as somebody that I'd kind of known about in the past. Uh, John some of these kind of Guys who, who think about this stuff in that way. And for some of us, that can be helpful. Because my, my point is, even if you're not an atheist or agnostic or a skeptic, potentially having a couple of these thoughts up your sleeve can be helpful, even for the Christian who says something like, you know, I really don't need to know about all that. I just believe it because God's word says it. Fair enough, and I'm with you. I really am. And I love your faith. But maybe even you could be strengthened through some of this, this thinking. So there is a God. The second point today is simply, you're not him. Those are two big theological thoughts. There is a God and you're not him. I think I can remember, I was trying to remember the first time I realized I wasn't God. I was trying to remember back to this moment. I think this might be the first time I can remember when I thought something like potential, I didn't have this exact thought, but I realized I'm not God. I was probably four, maybe five, I don't know. I went to the police station as a little kid, did a little tour or something like that. I can't remember any of that, but I remember being outside the police station and I remember a guy giving me a badge and a little bear, a little teddy bear. And I took that little teddy bear, we drove home, 
And I got home and our dog, Peanut, like I just opened the door, this is what I remember, and I stepped out and Peanut, our dog, grabbed that little teddy bear and ran with it to the muddiest place on the property and took it into that, and the, my teddy bear got all muddied. I remember that. And if I was God, I wouldn't have let that happen. You know what I'm saying? If I was God, there was no way that teddy bear was going to have that happen, and Penny would probably be floating on the moon. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not God. I have limits. I can't just do anything I want to do. There's, see, the Bible actually gives to us some answers. They're not necessarily always provable. I'm not saying that. But it does kind of throw out there some answers to things like why humanity is the way it is. Evil and, and, and the, the problem of evil, the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of humanity, human beings trying to fix all this stuff and trying to do it on our own. The Bible speaks to some of that kind of stuff how it always seems to just fall short of what's really needed. Because year after year after year, it seems like more people put their finger on the button than less people put the finger on the button. You see what I'm saying? It always just seems like things are spiraling kind of out of control. And the Bible actually gives a kind of answer to why that is. We have limits. We can't do it just everything we want to do. If I was God, the, the, the teddy bear would have made it. There's limits. And so it begins to show us, within the Pentateuch, it begins to show us why we will need God's help. It'll begin to show us that we will be in desperate need of God's help help. We're going to need, we're going to need help of some kind. We're going to need his help. Unless you're going to throw out a different worldview that would trust in humanity or, or maybe us coming together at some point and finding peace of some, I mean, that's kind of what you get offered today from our, our secular world is kind of a hope in humanity at some point Is that what you're throwing out there? That's fine. It almost makes more sense to me that there would be a God who comes to help. This was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, as he struggled as an atheist with whether or not there's a God, he comes to the conclusion in his mind that it makes the most sense. That Christianity and what it puts forward as a worldview actually he could reason out makes the most sense. At some point, the gift of faith is still needed to trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I get all that. But I want to make sure we're spending some time recognizing the very first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And it has incredible implications for the rest of the Bible. God's work and his activity at the beginning sets the pace for the rest of the story. Because it will be God's work and his activity, his help that we're going to need. See, and this is why the God of creation 
is the God of Adam and Eve. He is the God of Abraham and Noah. He is the God of Isaac and Jacob. And as you read through these next couple of weeks, he is the God of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah. You'll hear about some of that as you read. He is the God of the Israelites. He is the God of Moses and Joshua. And now outside of the Pentateuch, he is the God of King David and Saul. The God of Solomon, the God of the prophets, Jonah and, 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 and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And he's the God of Daniel in exile. He is the God who, 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 who through the prophet Isaiah says, I myself will have to come. I have sent prophets and priests and kings and they have all fallen short of what's really needed. I will have to come. The everlasting father, the prince of peace will need to come. And so God then actually comes and enters into to creation. We sang about that. Heaven will come down. He will be born of the Virgin Mary and his name will be Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And so God comes into our world. The God of Adam and Eve and Joseph and all. That God comes and breaks in. And that God goes to the cross and he takes all of your sin and brokenness. He takes all of the punishment of evil and death and he puts it on his own shoulders and that God dies for us. Massive. And then three days later, that God rises from the dead. And in his resurrection, he begins to do something. In his resurrection, he begins to do a new creation. 1 Corinthians. He begins to do a new creation. He begins to bring restoration into our world. And he begins to invite us into a new humanity. A humanity that is founded and in him. And this new humanity, he is already beginning to do. A humanity that is absolutely founded on love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. This is why week after week during our service, we come and we say, I'm a sinner. I'm in need because I don't live up to that new humanity-ness yet. Like one day I will. And so I want that old side of me to keep dying. Anything that would have nothing to do with that new humanity, I want that to die. I want to put that to death in myself. It's not appropriate for this new humanity. And it continues to be the wrestle that we face day after day. 
But this new humanity, you and I can already be part of through faith in Jesus Christ and in our baptism, connected to Christ. You become born again. New creation. This, Paul says, Jesus is the first fruits of what's to come. He's a new creation. In the beginning, God created. In Jesus' resurrection, new creation stuff starts happening. He's the first fruits of what's to come. This is for you and for me today. It's for every single person in the room. You can be an absolute atheist and agnostic and you can recognize that God has come for me to save me. I don't have to rely on the help of humanity and, and that I can rely on the creator of the universe. And this God will come again one day. bringing heaven with himself, the new city, the new Jerusalem. It, I believe everything I just said to be true by faith. It also kind of coolly makes sense. It's a beautiful way to live life. It's a beautiful way to live life. Are you kidding me? I would submit to the atheist, the agnostic, or the skeptic. What you might be missing is just a beautiful way to live life. Meaning, value, purpose. Let's talk about that some more. Let's continue to pay attention to God's work and his activity in the front part of the Bible, the Pentateuch, over these next couple of weeks. And let's let that, his work and activity, set the pace for the entire scriptures and uh, our faith. Lord, we thank you so much for this time that we got to spend together. There's nothing more fun than your word. Lord, we thank you for how you're working in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you for your love. Thank you for saving us. Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for you. I pray that today would stir people up to want to get baptized. I pray it would stir people up to want to put their faith and their trust in the living God. That they would look to you today, Lord. And the person that doesn't know where to look, Jesus, that they would look at you. And what you did for them on the cross. And what you did for them three days later, rising from the dead. You are alive and well. Lacey shared that with us today. You are on the move and you're still working and doing. Thank you for that, Lord. We love you, we trust in you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.